four, three. This is Geek Gab with your host, Dornall and me, Daddy Warpig. We are back, Geek Gab, for, let's see, Saturday, August 3rd, 2019. And we are here today to talk about the boys and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And uh, I threw the boys in there because as great a movie as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was, I don't know that I can talk about it for an entire hour. Oops. Th did I give the review away? Oh, no. I think you might have. Man. Well, happy Saturday, to, happy Saturday to you. That's okay. We could do a short show, right? Yeah. So, uh, how was your week? Isn't that what I normally say at this point in the show? It sure is. Uh, it's it's been a tough week uh, dealing with some drama at work, but I have good news. I've completed a uh, Dungeons and Dragons fifth edition game of the Curse of Strahd module. That's the classic Ravenloft fiftified with all the cheesy narrative story beats and backstory that you might come to expect from modern gaming but it was good it was a it was a fun and satisfying finish to the uh to the story which is to say we got into a fight and uh it was a pure damage check and all of us really reveled in 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 doing as much damage to the monsters as possible. And it was a good time. Had by all. And nothing you have seen has changed your opinion that 5th edition is basically a superhero fantasy game. Absolutely. It was... The the module itself, it's made for four characters of a, of a particular level range. And... You, it is intended that you go to all the different spots in the in the little region in 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 the land of Barovia, and or eventually uh, go into explore the castle Ravenloft itself. So there's characters, side quests, little nooks and crannies of backstories and plot lines, and and if. Your characters are, if your characters are of the appropriate level, all the encounters are, uh, you know, tailored to that level range, and it's, it feels like a, a theme park. It feels like, a, it feels like a, it really does feel like an instance in an MMO, or, or, a, or a zone in an MMO, where if you're playing World of Warcraft, and sort of, you, you, you're walking on the road, and you cross past the mountains, and all of a sudden it turns dark, and there, there's Victorian architecture, and, and, and werewolves and things. You're like, oh, I've I've entered the gothic horror zone. This is going to be fun, and that's exactly what it is. <laughs> oh man. So yeah, so, it's, it's um, yeah, it's I mean yeah, it's a good time. And uh, if you like fifth edition, sure, have fun, play it. But the game master, because uh, of the, we generated a lot of XP, and we're actually playing with a large party. 
I think that we had five or six of us at most of the time. It was uh, he had he basically had to edit all the um, monsters encounters that uh, actually be satisfying for us. All right. Oh, so you weren't GMing this. You were playing it. I was playing. I was playing. I was the paladin because when the DM says, hey, we're we're going to play a, a module, we're going to play a game about hunting a vampire, you roll a paladin. That's, you, that's what you do. Let me think about that. Yes, I believe that is a sound strategy. <laughs> All right, I want to I want to set something up here. I'm this listening. is not this is not the odd or funny thing. This is just the setup, okay? And you're going to think, how can this not be the odd or funny thing? But but trust me, this is just the setup. Multiple locations in Commerce City, Colorado. Colorado, Commerce City, Colorado, in 2019, in America. Multiple locations are closed because fleas have the black plague and are spreading it to prairie dogs in the area. And they're worried it might infest animals and that they might jump to humans. Wow. Are you serious? <laughs> I'm serious. This is a real news story. Uh, Not that, a joke. I can't believe I haven't heard of this yet. That's, that's terrifying. Do you want the plague? That's how you get the plague. Yeah. So horrifyingly incongruous. The Black Plague in modern day Colorado. So I see this tweet. This news tweet on the Twitters. And then immediately below it. And I swear I am not making this up. Mm -hmm. There is an advertisement for some medicine that is great for fending off the plague. <laughs> and this medicine this medicine has the following list of ingredients. Cinnamon bark, clove blood, bud, eucalyptus, rosemary, oregano, plus, plus, lemon. That's great when you uh, when you no longer need it to fend off the black plague. You can use it to season your poultry and fish. And the picture of it says, sending love. Great for fending off the plague. 
Lemon. Great for fending off the plague. Lemon is. Legendary. For fending off the plague. And what's best about this is the name. The name of this great tonic for fending off the plague is Five Thieves Oil. Oh my, what? Five Thieves Oil. Oh. <laughs> because it in truth and advertising. That's amazing. You got a black plague problem? Try this. Try this oil. Hey, although it sounds like you were mocking that uh, those ingredients, but I don't think they had many leaven, lemons in medieval Europe, so that pokes a hole in your theory right there. That is true. Yeah, could could the Black Plague have been stopped by just a few imports of a tropical fruit? We'll never know. Also, eucalyptus, not native to Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we don't know. We don't know eucalyptus and lemon and rosemary and, and all of the rest could have been, could have been crucial. In halting the spread of the Black Plague, we we don't know. So, all right, uh, that's incredible. <laughs> that's incredible news. Is <laughs> my week? My week is now complete. Five, five thieves oil will save you from the Black Plague in. Commerce City, Colorado. So, congratulations, folks. You are saved. That's it. If For anybody in the mountains, run right out. Get yourself some Five Thieves Oil. In fact, you can order it off Amazon.com. Free shipping. Disclaimer, <laughs> d- disclaimer we... Uh, we we do not receive any compensation. We, this is... That was not a... That was not a... Uh, what do they call it? Promoted product. <laughs> we at the Gap are not endorsing any of that ourselves. <laughs> We're just passing along the information. We are not offering an endorsement. We are not medical personnel. <laughs> We're not responsible for any consequences. <laughs> if you decide to buy Five Thieves Oil yourself. Wow. So speaking of Amazon, ooh. Oh. This here is another one of my legendary, another one of my legendary transitions. Speaking of Amazon, speaking of, did Amazon. you know if you have Amazon Prime, if you have Amazon Prime, you can watch a whole lot of original Amazon programming. I I had heard that somewhere before. Is is there any is there particular programming that should interest us? Well, I watched just this week, as a matter of fact, an original Amazon program called The Boys. 
That's a that's a pretty generic name. Not it is actually a pretty generic name, but it's based on a comic book series called The Boys. There we go. And as we know, uh, comic book writers are the most unoriginal people on the planet. Um, the comic book series was written by a man named Garth Ennis. I've heard that name before. Um, yeah, he's kind of like... He's an older comic book writer. And... Uh, He uh, he's not of uh, the Alan Moorish generation, as far as I remember. Um, but uh, um, he's just after that generation, so he's older than all of the current, um, all of the current crop of of nitwits and newbies who are running comics into the ground. Okay. So. So, yeah, I, I look up his, I, uh, his bibliography. He's, he's done a bunch of different books. He's worked for the, the big two and, and he's done a bunch of other, he, he's done a bunch of titles that you probably heard of. Hell, yeah. Hell, Hellblazer. Uh, speaking of Alan Moore, Punisher. He's done. He's done some. He's done a bunch of comics. He just did a six-issue limited series for Punisher about his days in Vietnam before he became. Uh, I think it's the Platoon, Punisher the Platoon. I I got the six issues about him. Uh, they were really good. He's actually a really good writer. Okay. Um. So, he is not stopped by political correctness. Um, and the series has several major conceptual changes from the comics. So, if you've read the comics then you'll just have to put them aside. They have almost nothing to do in the series. So I'm just going to be talking about the series. In the series, a corporation named Vought sponsors 200 superheroes coast-to-coast -coast across America. And the most powerful superheroes in the world are called the seven and so the like, seven, like the justice league or or something like that <laughs> um let me tell you about the seven the leader of the seven is a tall blonde guy in a red right and blue um a blue uniform, red boots, eagles on his shoulder, the flag as a cloak, or as a cape, excuse me. 
who uh, flies, who's very strong and invulnerable, and who shoots laser beams from his eyes. Uh-huh. He's called the Homelander. Uh-huh. So, so, so he's the villain, is what you're saying. Um, and next to him is Queen Maeve, who is a beautiful, strong, impervious woman. She's basically impervious to damage. Who uh, uh, who doesn't fly? And next to them is a gentleman called the Deep, who swims real fast in the ocean, who can breathe underwater, who can go all the way down to the bottom of the ocean, and who talks to fish. Next to them is a train who's a black kid from the ghetto, who is the fastest man on earth. That's why he's called A-Train. Oh, I um, get it, because he's fast like a train. Yeah. And then there's a, a, a hero whose name is Black Noir. Wait, bl- <laughs> Black now, Noir. His name is Black Black. Now, for those, yeah, for those of you that know, Noir is French for black. <laughs> we don't learn anything about him in the series, but he plays the piano beautifully. He's a concert pianist level piano player. But he's also like a ninja. He jumps around. He kicks the crap out of people. He throws little ninja dart-like things uh, with unerring accuracy. Well, of course. Very, very tough. Every superhero team is a ninja. Ninjas ninjas are cool as hell. They they need to be in just about every comic book. Um, I mean, he doesn't look like a ninja. He doesn't wear a ninja's uniform, but he jumps up and down and flips over and just kicks the crap out of anything he gets near. Um, and they have a... One of the members of the Seven retires at the beginning of the show, and so they have a casting call, literally a casting call, like auditions for um, the real world, and... Uh, cute Christian gal um, from the Midwest who drains electricity from all around her and can redirect it in bursts of energy. Um, She's also tough, uh, strong, and and invulnerable. Um, I mean, literally invulnerable. She can take a 50 caliber sniper rifle bullet to the chest she gets knocked down and it hurts, but nothing gets broken and she can get right back up. So she's a tough little gal. Hmm. <laughs> um, and she is a sweet, innocent gal who gets brought in to join the Seven, who she thinks, believes are all heroes. And this is the part of the story. The Seven are supposed to be the heroes but it turns out that they are just 
uh, money grubbing, corrupt. One of them uh, juices on a, you know, what's basically superhero steroids. Um, How one of them, uh, yeah, they're they're basically Hollywood actors, is what they are. Um, and Vought, uh you know, makes quote-unquote reality shows with them that they release. There's a Vought cinematic universe and on and on. Asked with taking down supers who broke the law. Only one of the supers struck back and killed some people on the, uh, some family members of people on the team. So they broke them up. And the show, the 10 episodes of the show are about him trying to get the boys who were the people working on this team together because they finally figured some stuff out that led to a really, really huge plot by Vought. And there's a guy named Huey or Hugh whose girlfriend gets run through and blown up by a train and it turns out that he's pretty much a natural. Um, as, as one other character says uh, about five episodes in, uh, Hugh, you are the rain man of screwing people over. <laughs> he, he's a natural. <laughs> he's a natural at suborning people, at blackmailing supers into doing what he needs to get just a little bit more information to follow this back trail. And uh, I'm going to give you my synopsis, my or my... Uh, why did my vocabulary suddenly go em empty? Let me give you uh, uh, my condensed review. Mm-hmm. I watched all 10 episodes. It started off a little rough, especially the first episode. There were some kind of gross um, moments. There's some nudity in, in the show um, and some kind of messed up things. Um, but it was interesting. They held my interest, and it got better as you went along. So, if this kind of storyline interests you, normal people finding out ways to blackmail or damage or incapacitate superpowered beings to try and bring bring them to justice or bring justice to them um, is worth it. They had a superhuman character who was entirely impervious. Like his skin is made of a uh, diamond hard substance. Uh, it's a carbon uh, composite that makes him invulnerable to all sorts of things. Um, but they finally figured out a way to uh, make him vulnerable so they could interrogate him to get some information they need. Um, and. If that sounds interesting to you, which it did, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I stuck with it. Um, so, yeah, I'd recommend that.
Uh, that, that, that sounds you know, like a great corrupt premise. superhuman. I, I like the idea. Yeah, I like the idea. And of that. normal people who are trying to bring them together. If, if you just turn it on his head, right? So, the if Superman's Superman's great, you know, Superman uses his powers for the benefit of mankind, right? He he that he feels that that's his duty, right? But if you turn that on its head, it's like, yeah, what if what if just a greedy jerk? You know, what if he were really a supervillain, right? Um, which is sort of weird because they're just supervillains. Uh, the, I guess that's one big plot hole. How is it that it's normal people f- working against these supervillains? Why haven't superheroes risen up to stop them? Is that is that addressed at all? And I, should, I should point out that um, the the seven are not nearly as powerful as the Justice League. They're powerful. They're way more powerful than normal humans, but not nearly as powerful as the Justice League. Uh, and they have the they're they're sponsored by an entire corporation, so they have people who cover up their and in fact we're gonna get to this in the What's Upon a Time in Hollywood review. We're gonna talk about some of this, which is how people cover up what really happened. And that was all the publicity and PR and stuff. On behalf of the supers, because that's what that corporation makes all its money off of. You know, hundreds of billions of dollars a year. Sure. So, yeah. I mean. Anyways, like, yeah. I I would recommend. It makes sense, right? You're you're covering up for your your the golden goose, right? You're covering up for your employees' uh, indiscretions that you can continue to maximize your profits. That sounds all very cynical. Yes. But anyways, hmm. shall we move on to Once Upon a Time? Well, that sounds good. Uh, I, I saw that, uh, what, uh, Monday or Tuesday, something like that. I saw it uh, last Saturday. So uh, Last Saturday night, my brother, brother came into town. We went and saw a movie together. So you've been sitting on this a whole week. Yes, your uh, your your opinions must be better developed than mine. They're 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 finely aged. What'd you think? <laughs> First off, I will say this: I'm a big fan of Quentin Tarantino movies. I've seen all of his movies, and I believe I've even seen all the movies he's scripted. Um, or even movies that like aren't mainstream Tarantino movies, but like the other half of uh, of Grindhouse. So I've seen Death Proof. You know, I've seen uh, True Romance, which he wrote the script for, but didn't um, didn't uh, direct. Uh, saw Crimson Tide, which he came in on a rewrite for to make it a little bit more quirky. Um, I saw, so anyways, I've, I enjoy Quentin Tarantino. I enjoy his dialogue. I enjoy the kind of movies he makes. Um, and I really, really enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was, um, it's a three hour movie that 
just kept me interested the whole movie. So if you're a Tarantino fan, I would absolutely recommend you go see it. And probably even if you're not a Tarantino fan, this is really Tarantino at the height of his skills as a director. Because he makes things that sound boring. He makes them interesting and enthralling. For reasons that aren't going to be immediately apparent. I think so too. I mean, for anybody who has no idea what it is, it's, it is a three-hour story that takes place in Hollywood in 1969. It's it's the end of that studio era in in Hollywood, and I think I think what you said is true. If if you're not a Quentin Tarantino fan, you can still mostly watch this movie. You can uh, enjoy the beautiful sets and the costumes and the cars and everything like that. Uh, I I was speaking with a couple of guys, uh, a couple of buddies that we play Gloomhaven with. Uh, Steve Holitz, we had on the show a few weeks ago, or a few months ago at this point. He, he's from Southern California, so he and another guy there from Southern California. They were talking about oh, all all this nostalgic stuff that they that they saw that they remember when they were growing up. Um, that sort of thing. There's there's a lot to enjoy about the film, uh, which is something that. It's, you can't say for the other Quentin Tarantino films. You can't just say, well, if you don't like his stuff, you can still watch The Hateful Eight. That's not true. <laughs> the Hateful Eight, uh, I liked it. I dare say it's absolutely unwatchable by someone who wouldn't like that sort of thing. You know what I mean? If so, Just a generic lover of westerns would not enjoy that movie. But this one... No, you, have to, you really have to like Quentin Tarantino to like The Hateful Eight. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, I saw the expanded Hateful Eight on Netflix. Um, that's even longer than the other Hateful Eight. What they call it? The and eight, I enjoyed it. I mean, that, I'm a Quentin fan. They call it the Hateful Nine and a Half. I don't know, man. <laughs> I uh, uh. here's the sad thing. I watched it mostly, see what was in there to see what was extra. I couldn't even tell what was extra in it. <laughs> so I have no idea what, what he put in it. I was like, <laughs> it's, what the and, hell is this? And unfortunately, you watch a long I movie. I still enjoyed it. You watch a long movie like, like Once Upon a Time in yeah. Hollywood, and, and someone says, "Why? How, did, how do you not cut that down? How is it three hours long? And with a lot of movies, you say, yeah, well, a lot of this was boring or a lot of this was unnecessary. But with this one, yeah, I wouldn't even know what to cut. It's it it really is it really is a story about an actor and his uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and his stunt double played by Brad Pitt and it he doesn't do any wacky time jumps or anything or not, well there there's one quick time skip but there's no uh, it is in chronological order it's not like Pulp Fiction. Uh, it is a a story that's sold, that's told over the three hours, and uh, and I don't want to get into spoilers yet, but it culminates in an an, an exceptionally satisfying <laughs> conclusion at the end. 
seriously, when that last thing came out uh, to deal with the last thing, I, I literally threw up the heavy metal horns. I was going, yeah, <laughs> literally in the theater. I am not even joking, man. I was head banging in the theater. It, it was, was so great. Awesome. It was so great. But that that's the thing is that it is a, is a well shot, well told. And I wasn't bored uh, the whole time, which I know that's damning with faint praise. No. It was, it was a lot of fun to watch. And, the... I want to give an example of why there was stuff in there that was absolutely necessary for the film as a whole that seems boring, but it wasn't boring, and why you couldn't cut it out. So there is a scene at one point where uh, Brad Pitt's character, Cliff Booth, okay, so we've set up that he was a stuntman who did cowboy shows in the late 50s. So that's about 10 years before the movie happened. The movie happens in 1969. And he was a war hero. He was a war hero probably in Korea because of the time when he was active as a stuntman. So he came back from the Korean War, became active as a stuntman. That's just a guess. It's a surmise I saw somebody make in a column, but it makes sense. Probably wasn't Vietnam because he was, you know, uh, that's when they were in their movie career or attempted movie career. So he comes home with his dog. And there's a five-minute scene of him watching some TV and opening cans of food to feed his dog. And I swear that sounds like the stupidest thing in the world you have ever heard. It sounds so boring, so painful to watch that you want to smack somebody and walk out of this film and get your money back. Mm. I get it. If mm. I had heard that before I went in and watched the movie, I would have wanted to do the same thing. All I can tell you, I can't make you feel as... as drawn into the scene as you will be. But I can tell you this. During the scene, he... <coughs> Excuse me. I got a cold today. Maybe you can't tell. During the scene, he turns on Man Mannix, uh, which is, I believe, Steve McQueen's TV show. And the theme song and opening credits to Mannix comes on. And as we're watching that, it kind of becomes the theme song. I'm repeating somebody else's opinion now, but it's true. Um, the theme song to Mannix kind of becomes his theme song because it kind of outlines who he is in a life he has led. And at the same time, he is showing how, Quentin Tarantino, mind you, is showing how well the dog is trained, how it instantly and totally responds to Booth's actions, to Brad Pitt's character's actions, and how it does what he says with a minimum of gestures and sounds 
to where in an instant it will do what he wants it to do with just very subtle control. Mm. And even though it's very hungry, and even though it clearly wants to eat, it just obeys him. And you probably wouldn't realize this just watching the movie, but that level of fine control of the dog becomes a crucial plot point later. So the scene not only illuminates Brad Pitt's character through the music and TV, the actions Brad Pitt is taking and his acting illuminate his character, the surroundings, what you see in the sink, what he cooks and eats, what the house he goes into, the home he goes into, Illuminate him, his economic situation, his character, who his character is as a person, what his past and present are. It is a lot of exposition laid out completely organically, and the information about the dog is set up for use later. And so it may seem like it's just a five-minute scene of nothing happening, but in actuality, there's a lot of information being conveyed to you. Quentin Tarantino is, in essence, sitting down and whispering in your ear and telling you all of these things that you need to know about Brad Pitt's character and all of the things you need to know about his relationship with his dog. And that's what keeps it interesting, because you're always learning a little bit more, and there's always something happening every second of this scene. I agree a hundred percent. That is exactly what kept the film going the whole time. By the time you watch that scene, you've already seen him and Leonardo DiCaprio's actor, the guy that he's a stunt double for, the way they interact with each other, the way they have a very close relationship, uh, not only a working relationship, but uh, um, the Leonardo DiCaprio uh, has hired him. You know, he, he helps. He also helps him as a driver and, and uh, caretaker and, and that sort of thing, as well as friends. Like, they're very close friends. And so by the time you get to this point in the story you're invested enough in their relationship to see, well, okay, we've seen what it's like when they're out and about uh, trying to get work for this actor, right? Uh, what's what, what's he like as a person? What's he like at home? That sort of thing. You don't mind, you don't mind that the few minutes spent just taking a closer look at who this guy is and how he lives. And then, as you said, all the other information, all that information is important it's significant in the actual story that that they're telling so yeah it's just like you said it sounds like a really boring five minutes but when you're there watching it it's great uh, which is basically the whole film I mean it's it's set in 1969 the the story ro revolves around a lot of the you know the famous characters in that era, 
uh, as you as you may know, uh, Margot Robbie plays Sharon Tate. Uh, Sharon Sharon Tate uh, is uh, is famous, unfortunately, in uh, in that era, and and her whole story is part of this of this ongoing tale, and so there's quite an ominous ominous background throughout the whole story, throughout the whole film, that really it doesn't take center stage until the end. And you're just invested the whole time and you think, wow, that you know, that's ominous. You know, you see such and such a character show up. Uh, and and I'm I'm avoiding spoilers for the moment, right? The these this character, this scene was yeah. really ominous early in the film, but then never mind that. And then uh, Brad Pitt's character meets, uh, you know, a commune of hippies, which is exceptionally ominous, especially for anybody who knows the history. And you go, oh, that's, this is really bad. Uh, And then, you know, forget it. Let's go back to these two, these two characters, because the film really is about the, uh, the actor played by Leonardo DiCaprio and his, Stunt double. Those two characters in their relationship, uh, which is which is really nice. I want to say, I want to say something about meeting the the Manson family out at Spawn's ranch. Mm. Um, I fully expected something to happen out there because the music was so ominous and the way the people acting was so. Uh, Ominous. It just filled me with tension. It just filled me with stress. I mean, I leaned over to my brother and said, "Dude, this is like the village of the damned." Mm-hmm. Um, like those freak kids. I think. I think that is Quentin Tarantino's signature. Whatever the people say, oh, I love his quirky dialogue, his wacky characters. I love the over-the-top violence uh, that he does in most of his films. I get that. I think. The one thing he does best is suspense. That's that that was his calling card in his, uh, and I think his most famous scene that he's ever shot. Uh, two of them in *Inglorious Bastards*, which, which I, you know, I thought was sort of a. I wouldn't watch it again, but I would watch those two scenes again at the beginning of the film with, uh, with the. Uh, What's his name? Uh, the Nazi coming and investigating, looking for uh, stowaways, right? That, that you know, it's intensely suspenseful because you know there's, you know, there's some people hiding out in the beneath the floorboards, and and he knows it, and he's trying to get the information out of the homeowner, or the or, right? And then a little bit later in the film, there's the scene in in the pub where the German soldiers suspect that they're in the presence of spies. And so there's this, this game where they're the, the two sides are probing each other, trying to one's trying to deceive the soldiers and the, uh, the German soldiers of course are trying to figure out if they're really spies or, or not that sort of thing. Uh, exceptionally suspenseful. And he does the same thing in that scene at the, at the ranch. You, you, it is entirely plausible that uh, terrible, terrible things are about to happen and it, you just you get filled with that that dread that suspense the whole scene that is what I think he does best and that was an excellent example of it. 
I was 100% sure that what was going to happen is that they were going to take those two tourists, ride them up to the hills, and kill them and roll them for money. That's what it felt like, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, or that something was going to happen. So, or that something they were going to try something with Brad Pitt's character. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, it was just Quentin Tarantino setting up the. And maybe this is a spoiler or not. I'm sorry if it is, but man, that was a that was nerve wracking. Yeah, it was brilliantly done. Also, I, I, I heard this has sort of made the rounds on the internet uh, infamously. Speaking of uh, speaking of fun character moments, yes, there is a scene or two with Bruce Lee, and it is hilarious. <laughs> because speaking, yeah. speaking of the outsized... I mean, the outsized characters in, from that era of film, if you, if you love film at all, if you love that era of film, we've got... Uh, Bruce Lee makes an appearance. Roman Polanski, of course. Uh, Steve McQueen has a couple of great lines in it, uh, uh, and a, and a few others that I'm blanking on right now. You're just like, oh hey, and and sometimes they even put subtitles like Steve McQueen, so and so, right is is right here, that sort of thing, uh, just in case uh, just in case you you don't recognize who they're supposed to be right off the bat. A uh, lot of great stuff. You enjoyed the scene with Bruce Lee, I take it. Oh yeah, I thought. Uh, I mean, they showed some of it in the uh, trailer, and so I was waiting for those to pop up in the in the movie, and and I was not disappointed. That whole scene, the whole scene with Bruce Lee was just fabulous. You know, I heard that his so uh, funny, so. I heard that his his daughter's really mad about it, about the way he was portrayed in the in the film, raising a scene yeah. on the internet. What you gonna do? Nah. Yeah, I'm sorry. He's <laughs> he belongs uh, to history now, sweetie. Yep. Yep. But uh, that yeah, that was a that was a lot of fun. I mean, I'm a little I'm a little young to truly appreciate that era of of Hollywood and that era of film. Uh, but it for me it was a it was a interesting story, and I really enjoyed that. Uh, that view, the, the I, f- it felt like he really brought a different era of America to life for a couple of hours, uh, and that was interesting. Sort of a an homage, or actually, I've seen it called a eulogy for the for the past. Which, I mean, that's a little dark, but I really, really enjoyed that aspect of it too. Um, so here's what I was talking about. Um, in the boys. And they actually touched on this in the movie just a bit. And I think it was wise of him not to go too deeply into this because it was a whole nother detour that would have made a kind of a noble and a sweet movie. I mean, you know, Quentin Tarantino made Pulp Fiction, but this is kind of a, a noble and a sweet movie. Which is kind of surprising. Yeah. I mean, am I wrong about that? 
Not at all. Which which uh, that that's which makes the ending that much funnier because yes, ultimately it was a really uh, it was a loving portrayal of the time, and it really it, it cared about its main characters, and you you also get the sense that the main characters a uh, a uh, a good guy and he's going to be okay. There's been so many stories in films about a down and out actor who's who's on the the downside, you know, the other side of his career where he's he's having trouble looking for work, uh which is established right at the beginning of the film. And they turn him into a a joke or 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 pathetic or something like that. But uh, it's not like that. It's it's really, um, really loving of the what's the character's name? Uh, Roger Dalton or something like that. I Rich love it. Dalton. Rich yeah. Dalton. Rich Dalton. Great name. Um, it's that sort of. It's it's really nice. It is really nice. And and the the ending after the uh, signature Quentin Tarantino uh, violence. Uh, spoiler: There is violence in this Quentin Tarantino film. It's it's it is really nice and sweet, and you're like, oh, I'm uh, I'm slowly starting to forget all that horrible violence I just witnessed. <laughs> um. So, anyways, this is about Charles Manson, and they did touch on this briefly in the movie, and it ties back with the boys. Um, Charles Manson was the Jeffrey Epstein of his day, right? Um, young girls ran away to LA. Sorry, it's dark. I'm sorry. I went there. Did I I, shock I, you? I haven't I haven't made the connection yet. You're gonna have to explain that connection. You know who Jeffrey Epstein is, right? Well, I sure do. But I Charles Manson. Okay. I mean, Charles Manson wasn't a billionaire. He didn't, you know, use money and connections to to get away with with whatever he wanted. Jeffrey Epstein struck me as Jeffrey Epstein struck me as the type of person who had so many resources he could get away with whatever he wanted. I didn't get that impression from Charles Manson. If you were a this is the thing about the sixties, is if you were a pervert scumbag, you didn't have to be a billionaire. All you had to do was set up a hippie commune. So he would go to the buses where runaways were coming into LA to be, you know, get away from their families and stuff. Um, and he was a charmer, man, back in the day. Like, today, crazy Charles Manson cutting the swastikas into his forehead, Charles Manson, completely different dude. Back in the 60s, Charles Manson could charm people, charm girls. And so he'd invite them to come to a place where they could had lots of people around, where they could get meals and stuff, give them drugs. And what Charles Manson would do is he had a guitar. He would make music, and he would look directly at you, like look right in your eyes, and walk towards you, strumming on his guitar, and he would make up a song on the spot, off the top of his head, all about you, rhyming and singing and making up the song all about you. And it was just really absolutely impressive, and it impressed the hell out of all these girls, and they were getting full-on attention from a guy who's telling them they were beautiful and telling them they were awesome. And 
they'd fall in love with them. And these runaway girls were, uh, as they say, not of legal age. Hmm. So Charles Manson was invited to all kinds of swanky Hollywood parties. And you know what Roman Polanski, who shows up in this movie a couple of times, you know what Roman Polanski eventually had to flee sure. America for? Sure, sure. Again, someone who was not of illegal age. So Charles Manson had access to all of these hippie chicks. And, you know, Cliff Booth was just offering a girl a ride home. He asks her, you know, do you have, uh, are you 18? Do you have a piece of identification that says you're 18? And then he says, no, you don't. Because you're not. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just a little light touching on the fact that a lot of the girls in his commune were A, DTF, and B, not of legal age. And that's how Charles Manson networked among the Hollywood people. Um, he used to hang out with one of the Beach Boys. In fact, the house that, that Sharon Tate and Roland Plansky are living in used to be um, the Beach Boys house. The the guy in the Beach Boys used to make uh, music with once. They recorded an entire album and then the Beach Boy, you know, destroyed all the master records and said that there were sounds on that album that no human being should ever hear. I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't know what meant was on that album, but he said there were literally evil sounds on that album. Well, okay. I, I'm I, just reporting what was said. I'm not... uh, I get the connection now. You, you've connected the dots for me. I, I admit my my. Uh, you've just doubled my knowledge of the Charles Manson saga. So, um, but anyways, that's who Charles Manson was, and that's uh, he was the Jeffrey Epstein in Hollywood of his day, and that's why when it came time to prosecute him, and this is where the voice comes in, Vincent Bugliosi, who was the prosecutor, had to make out like he was this absolute outsider, that nobody knew him, and that him and his girls just came in and killed people, and that was it, you know, helter-skelter and all of that, because he was protecting the reputations of Hollywood stars. He was drawing a big cloak over all the nastiness that was going on, um, you know, between the people that Manson met at the parties, and, and it, he was a pimp. That's what Manson was. He was a pimp. And I don't mean pimp as in, oh, yeah, he's pimping. No, I mean uh, as in, you know, give him money and he'll deliver. He was a pimp. Um, and that's what the prosecutor had to cover up in, at the trial. And so you ask, well, how do these superheroes get away with um, doing bad things behind the scenes well, they got away with the same way that all those Hollywood stars who bought from Manson got away with it. The system covered up their crimes. It kept them from coming out because they were, you know, powerful. They had connections and they were the Hollywood stars. All right. I get it. I don't have anything to add. 
You've expanded <laughs> my you've expanded my mind. Okay. <laughs> I'm sorry again. I I tried to talk about the subject as delicately as possible without being too gross. It's just hard truths are hard. It's okay. That's, that's what was what. Yeah. So I'm just I'm really glad the movie ended the way it did. In a Quentin Tarantino esque bloodbath, uh reminiscent of Inglorious Bastards in a couple of ways and uh and then a satisfying conclusion for our main our, our main character for everyone involved. Yeah, for for just about everyone involved. <laughs> yeah. Not so much for a couple of them, but Yeah. Uh, and let me just say, the best part uh, after of that ending, the entire audience, we all lost our minds as soon as the 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 payoff finally happened. Everybody was laughing and cheering. It was so much fun to watch that in a theater. Oh, dude, when he grabs that one girl and just starts. Oh. <laughs> it's just wonderful Man. it's just it's so good uh so satisfying uh, that and it wasn't like oh that made the last two and a half hours worth it no the 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 whole thing was enjoyable and it made the payoff so much better yep all right do you have anything else uh I don't think there's anything else to say without really digging deep into the particular spoilers of the things that I like. Uh, it's it's a it's well shot, very well acted, uh, and the story, even the, if the movie, as I said, it's a bit long, no, not a minute is wasted. It's really enjoyable all the way through, and you will absolutely love the ending. Uh, so, I without without spoiling specific parts, that's all I have to say about it. Yeah, I very much love the movie, um, and I think uh, I think even people who are uh, uh, who are not Quentin Tarantino fans, and and I've noticed that people on the right and on the left, everybody seems to love this movie. Everybody loves it. It's so, uh, I've I've heard one person say, "Oh, it was boring," out of you know dozens of, and I know that's a huge sample size, but yeah. Out of dozens. Well, that's all I have to say about the film. And as as for today, uh, it's been awesome talking. I love to, I love it when a good movie's out and we can really uh, talk about what we like and what makes it good. And I appreciate everybody hanging out in the chat and, and chatting with us as well. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Um, this is Geek Gab for Saturday, August 3rd, 2019. Um, you can get us on... Uh, we are on youtube.com slash geekgab, or you can listen to us on soundcloud.com, or you can subscribe on the Google Play Store, or the Apple iTunes Store. Just uh, check us out. Um, do a search for Geek Gab. We are leaving you for today, but don't you worry. Don't you fret. We will be back.